You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. Welcome to the show, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy as we move into December and towards that light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Hang in there, folks, and we'll all get there together. And welcome to episode 26. And I'm going to mark this one as a, a bit of a watershed moment, and I also want to talk about the show itself for a little bit. 26 means half a year of episodes, even though technically it took uh, a little bit more than six months to get here. And it's been a pretty interesting journey, and I've learned a lot along the way. Uh, Of course, while I was getting this thing off the ground, I snagged a lot of basic knowledge just by reading, you know, how-to books and blogs and other resources. But uh, as they say, there's nothing like on-the-job training. And of course, the old saying uh, is, work smarter, not harder. But uh, I like to think I'm doing both of those things at this point. And, of course, we would not be here without all of the wonderful people who uh, agreed to come on the show as guests, including those of you whose segments haven't aired yet. Uh, You have all helped to get the show off the ground and in the middle of a pandemic, no less. So I want to thank you all for your time uh, and for your words and and for entertaining me. Uh, I have the best seat in the house because uh, I get to talk with you all and I get to hear what you have to say before anybody else does, so yay me. Also, uh, wintertime is the perfect time to stockpile episodes, and so I've been busy with getting interviews scheduled and putting shows together and so on and so forth. And one thing about that that hasn't changed is I continue to want guests from across the spectrum. I, I want to talk to the scientists and the conservation people, the field herpers, and all of the other voices uh, from across the world Uh, of amphibians and reptiles. Um, I want all the peoples, and I want a nice mix of shows uh, across time. But uh, the mix is not always what I want it to be, uh, given the pandemic and uh, uh, just the time it takes to put everything together. But but that's always the goal of the show. But as I said, I'm pushing to get more shows done now because spring and summer are coming, and folks, I fully intend to make up for lost time in 2021. Uh, so I don't want long gaps in the show releases just because I'm somewhere else and out of touch and incommunicado. But if I have a backlog of shows ready to go, I can schedule the release uh, from my hosting platform and it just kind of happens automatically without me. And uh, there is another special event that marks this episode. The So Much Pingle Patreon campaign was kicked off today, and I want to send out a special thank you to all of the same-day responders who signed up on Patreon before I recorded this intro, and those include Justin M., Herp MX, Jill Riles, Smet Logic, Joshua Wallace, Ryan Jungle Deviant Borgman, Marty Whalen, Christopher Smith, Emily Taylor, John Burris, Camel S., Brandon Kong, Charles Bells, James Van Dyke, and Brandon Bal- 
Ballard. Brandon, you just made it under the wire there. Uh, what can I say? Uh, you guys rock, and I'm deeply touched. And thanks so much for supporting the show. Uh, you know, it's really starting to feel like a real entertainment channel now. Now, before we get to our guest, I want to say just a little bit more about Patreon. Um, I, I put this off longer than I should have, uh, partly because it's hard to ask people for money, and partly because there's a lot more planning and work to get Patreon set up properly to fit this show. And Well, if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a platform that allows folks to easily contribute some bucks to people working in arts and entertainment. So let me just say that uh, I'm so thankful that I don't depend on this podcast to make a living and, and pay the bills. Uh, that would make so much Pingle a job, and that would make Patreon my part-time job uh, to support the full-time job. So, um, yikes. Uh, right? I mean, as you might guess, that would just suck the fun right out of this project. Uh, I am retired, and I don't want and or need a job. Uh, but I am on a fixed income, and, and that's why we're doing Patreon, uh, because the production costs for the show are, are significant. And so I'm not asking anyone to help with my mortgage or car payment, thank goodness. I just need a little help offsetting production costs, which include things like hosting platforms and interview software, equipment, and, and so forth. Uh, oh, yeah, and, and outsourcing. Um because I currently contract out about half of the mixing and editing work uh, that comes in for the show in order to keep the, the episodes coming out on time. And, you know, I am getting better and faster at the mix and edit stuff, but, uh, but I'm, I'm just not going to keep up with the pace that this weekly show demands. So if I can use the Patreon crowdfunding model and get a bunch of people to kick in a few bucks, well, then I can keep the show rolling on uh, for the foreseeable future. And, of course, now I'm going to answer a few questions that I know are coming. I'm kind of heading them off. Uh, a Patreon has a tier structure that can be quite complicated if you want it to be. You can do bonus episodes for folks who contribute at a certain level, and there's early releases and videos and one-on-one -on -one chats. And I'm pretty sure that if you donate enough, I will come over and paint your house. I'm kidding. But all of that has it, – it's a lot to manage, and – uh, as I said before, I don't want Patreon to be my part-time job, and I want to focus on this show. And I want everyone to hear every episode. So I'm keeping Patreon very simple, and, and no shows will be held hostage for a few bucks more. Okay, well, thanks for coming to my telethon. Uh, I'm glad to get that out of the way. And, well, I hope you will consider contributing a few bucks to this entertainment channel. Uh, that's patreon.com slash so much pingle. Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N and so much pingle is one word. Uh, and thanks for listening, folks. Really, I really mean it. And for supporting the show. And of course, now I can concentrate on getting the merch project moving forward. Now let's get to this week's guest. Today we're talking with Scott Iper, who's from the Brisbane area of Northeast Australia. And when it comes to herbs, Scott is a jack-of-all-trades, and he and his wife, Ty, have a company called nature for You. Uh, that's nature for You with a number four, and they engage in a number of activities that include uh, survey work, uh, educational outreach, both for kids and adults, and they do some wildlife consulting and a few other things. And, and Scott and Ty also have a number of book projects, uh, uh, some uh, in print and some uh, that are coming up, uh, that feature herps. And so sure, be sure to check out the show notes for more information on that. And 
And I have a copy of the Frogs of Australia book that Scott co-authored with Peter Rowland. And uh, man, it's a, it's a great little book. And it's the perfect size for use in the field. And when I do get to Australia, that one's, uh, that one's going in my suitcase uh, along with a few others. And of course, Scott is a, a herper interested in all of the Australian herpetofauna. And, and I have to say that while I was interested in visiting Oz and have been for, for quite a while, uh, my chat with Scott really amped up my, my thinking and planning and my interest in, and maybe that's been bumped up the queue a little bit. So, so let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode. And today, I'm speaking with Scott Iper. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. And you? Yeah, good, mate. Having my morning cup of coffee here in, in sunny Brisbane in Australia. Awesome. You're having your morning cup, and I just had my afternoon cup. Excellent. Excellent. You can never <laughs> have too much coffee, despite what the doctors say. <laughs> uh i'm yeah i'm right i'm right there with you yeah <laughs> uh well welcome to the show and uh this is um the farthest you're the farthest guest how's that from my Excellent. basement studio here in the middle of illinois uh you're talking to you and you're in do you call yourself brisbane or you're you're in the brisbane area is that correct yeah we're at a place called logan which is about halfway between the gold coast and, and brisbane on the, the southern side of Brisbane. So not okay. too far to some pretty good herping meccas, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. And uh, just to paint a picture, too, you're up in the the northeast quadrant of Australia, if you put Australia in four pieces, correct? Yeah, probably at the, the southernmost point of the northeast quadrant would be a good way to describe where we are. So it's a, a subtropical uh, environment. Uh, outside at the moment, it's um, eight o'clock in the morning and it's about uh, 89 degrees Fahrenheit at the moment and about 75% humidity. So it's it's pretty conducive to, to reptiles. We're pretty lucky in where we are within 100 kilometres of where we are. We've got about uh, 350 species of, of reptiles and amphibians. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's, it's also amazing that it's 89 degrees there because <laughs> it's about half that here. Um, uh, that, that's quite a few, that's, that's a lot of herpetofauna, uh, Scott. That's just amazing. Yeah. yeah. We have 32 species of snake. That's not, in, then on top of that, we've got sea snakes and stuff like that as well. Um, we've got sea turtles. Uh, we have four different families of frogs. So we have the, the Pelodriidae, the, the Australian, Australasian tree frogs. We have microhylidae, oh, sorry, no microhylidae, uh, I'll get that right, uh, mybotrachidae, the, the, the southern frogs. We have limnodonastes, the swamp frogs, and then we have the uh, cane toad as well, which is which is very, very common in the area. Um, skinks, geckos, you know, we've got the fantastic leaf-tailed geckos not too far from here. Um, the Australian leaf-tails, not the Madagascan leaf-tails, obviously, and then... Um, Lace monitors, legless lizards, all sorts of very, very cool, cool animals, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's very intriguing to me. And very, it's, I'm excited to hear you talk about it. Yeah, well, you'll have to come over and experience it at some point in time, Mike, and come and see oh. what Australian herping's all about. It's getting closer and closer. I don't know when yet, but it's getting closer. So um, I'm 
happy to talk to you. Uh, we've corresponded for a number of years, and uh, we have some associations in various various ways. Um, uh, you uh, were associated with some Hurt Mapper projects, um, yep. uh, which which is something I'm tied into, and I think that's where, really where I uh, became more or less aware of what you're up to over there. And yeah. uh, so I want to kind of run through a couple things with you first, and. Uh, you and your wife, Ty, have uh, a business over there uh, called uh, Nature for You, and the four is the number four. And uh, you do all kinds of cool stuff with that with Nature for You. I see you do some uh, survey work and you do uh, training, which I presume is in handling venomous animals and educational outreach and things like that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So uh, Nature for You, we... Formed the business back in 2005. Um, main part of the business initially was it was educational outreach, doing wildlife demonstrations and and teaching kids and, and adults about Australian wildlife, uh, in particular reptiles and amphibians. And then that sort of branched out to then also talking to uh, areas in regards to snake safety. So uh, businesses would come to us and and say, "What's the best way we can train our our people up to make sure that they don't have a bad interaction with a brown snake or a black snake or something like that. And so we would go in, we would talk to the people and we would provide mitigation strategies on on how to minimise the interactions between their staff and, and snakes. Um, and the whole idea of that is that we didn't want animals to get hurt, but we also didn't want people getting hurt either. So we would provide ways that they could change their business slightly to make it uh, less conducive to to snake and human interaction. So it might be putting guards on the doors and things like that. Uh, as part of that, some of the businesses also in remote locations wanted some training in regards to venomous snake management. And so we, <clears throat> pardon me, we devised a, a course up to actually teach people how to remove venomous snakes safely using non-contact methods um and so that part of the the business was born their environment departments uh have then also asked us to assist with uh doing targeted surveys for endangered species and so that's where the the consultancy side of things came out of that um so we're like all small businesses, you've got to try and focus on as many income streams as you can for them to be profitable. So, you know, we'll, well, if we can do it, we'll, we'll, we'll get involved in it. Um, and so, the, you know, at the heart of the business, though, really is that educational outreach. We were conducting emergency removals, but we've, we've taken that away now. The science is, is pretty clear to show that emergency removals don't work you're effectively sending the animal to its death in a lot of ways when you translocate many animals. If you're not translocating the animal within its normal home range. So we now try and provide strategies for businesses that don't have the need for translocation because the animals don't have that interaction with people in the first place. I got you. It's better. It's better just to to clean up the business and seal it up and and um, make everybody aware of what they're doing uh, rather than try to find a new home for the animal. Yeah, and I, I suppose, too, the other side of that is that, 
you know, if you've got a, a factory or that neighbours onto a creek line that's heavily heavily bushed, you are going to have the odd snake that travels along that creek line. And so providing instruction to the employees as to what to do when they see a snake is a lot more, uh, lot better than saying, all right, I'm going to move that snake. Because they, they only probably see one in 30 or one in 40 snakes that happens to travel through the back of that yard of that business anyway. And so by providing a strategy for the business as to how to behave around snakes as opposed to just removing the snake, it actually provides the business with a, a better strategy uh, moving forward that their staff are actually trained, they know what to do and, and that they need to give the snake X amount of space and the snake will just move off on its own. I see. Um, maybe I'm I'm not correct on this, but I, because your wild all of your wildlife is protected, um, folks can't just walk out of this out of the factory and and go snake whacking. Uh, you know those those animals are protected and they have you know they have a right to exist too. Uh, and so, are people a little more enlightened about snakes uh, yeah. because of that protective of that protection? Uh, look, the, it's it's an interesting point. Um, people still kill snakes over here. There's no doubt about that. They feel threatened and they kill snakes. And and I'm not really aware of anyone ever being charged for killing a snake here in Australia because they they go to the judge and they say to the judge, well, I thought it was going to try and kill me, so I killed it instead. And the judge goes, oh, okay, fair enough, and, and they're okay. But um, it is a a deterrent for a lot of people not to kill snakes, the fact that it is illegal. And it's very well known that it is illegal to kill snakes here. So it doesn't stop everybody, but for the most part, it's a, it's good. It's also a good tool too to explain to people that, hey, it's not a great idea to kill snakes because it's illegal. I tend to go with the fact that about 80% of people that are bitten by snakes here in Australia are trying to either catch or kill them. And if they don't try and catch it and they don't try and kill it, chances are they won't get bitten by it. That's kind of funny because it's kind of the same way here, right? If, if you don't mess with them, your chances of getting bit go way down. Yeah, I, I mess with snakes, so occasionally I get bitten. But, um, you know, I'm I'm very, very cautious these days around uh, venomous snakes and make sure that I don't get bitten by those. Well, and your circumstances are a little different from mine. If I walk out of my house on, on a fine morning in late April and I see a little snake uh, on my sidewalk, I can bend down, scoop it up and, and pick it up without uh, any trepidation whatsoever. But uh, you guys have the scales uh, heavily weighing the other way in terms of what's safe to pick up and what's not safe to pick up. And I guess most of your snakes are not safe to pick up. Um, yeah, around here where I am, um, we have lots of dangerously venomous snakes here. We have some Mildly venomous snakes, which in my personal case are, might as well be dangerously venomous anyway, uh, which is something we might oh. touch on later with regards to snake venom and, and anti anaphylaxis. Um, but then at the same time, we do have the most common snake that's around my place is the carpet python. Um, and so carpet pythons being fairly large snakes, fairly distinct and don't and fairly sedentary in their habits do tend to be seen by a lot of people, and because they're seen by a lot of people, they are probably the most common snake in Brisbane backyards. 
uh, followed by a, a colubrid, the, the green tree snake, Dendrolaphus punctulata, again, a, a non, a, har- a harmless species. And so those two harmless species are the two most common in Brisbane. The the third is the eastern brown snake, Chidnea textilis, which is a, a dangerously venomous snake and can be quite fast moving and quite spirited in its defence when people mess with them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you do a lot of work with the kiddos, right? You go to schools and, and do some educational talks there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we go to the kids and, and explain to them about snake safety and um, talk a little bit about first aid and a little bit about um, reptile ecology and, and the environment and basically leaving the environment in a better state than uh, when you entered it, if you can. So uh, it's it's really good. And, and look... We're, we're a hands-on uh, display when we do our displays. The reason that we we do use uh, tactile is that we find it's a really good way to to cement that with the kids. I mean, it's people say, oh, it's, it's hard keeping kids' attention. All you've got to do is bring a snake out in a class and you've got all their attention very quickly. So, you have right. a, a harmless, you have a harmless snake? Yeah, yeah, that, we that use... Part of it? Yeah, we've got a an, an olive python that uh, and a number of other pythons. We use uh, multiple animals so that um, we are not providing the animal too much stress. You know, we want to make sure that our our husbandry and our ethics of the animals that we use are, are taken into consideration. So we want to make sure that they get breaks in between demonstrations and stuff. So we've got multiple animals. Um, but we we happen to have one olive python that's called Cuddles that's been doing demonstrations now for over 32 years consistently. Wow. Um, so that snake is about 37 to 38 years of age and he is still doing demonstrations to this day. So, you know, that one particular olive python has um, been around the necks of literally thousands of kids um, and... You know he's he's very very friendly. He's, he's a, a large snake, but he's uh, very very used to dealing with young children. So you know he doesn't constrict or anything like that. And it's it's something that because we don't overfeed our animals or anything like that, uh, and we do take exceptional care of the animals for wherever we can. Um, we think that that's what's contributed to his longevity. I think snakes live for a lot longer than what people realize for the most part. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. It's still an amazing lifespan. And uh, it's an untold numbers of kids have been impacted by one snake. That's pretty amazing. Well, you, you never know if that uh, that snake has, has helped influence the, the next Harry Green or, you know, what I mean, or, the, or the next Mike Pingleton. Who knows? <laughs> yeah yeah really and and my my buddy steve marks up in canada you know he's always talking about you know it, once once the kids if the kids have a chance to touch that snake even just get their hands on it a little bit and have a tactile experience with it um they're in they'll listen to whatever you want to tell them and and they you know they, they buy into it it's a it's not a hard sell no, I always seem to have lots of kids that want to help me pack up at the end of the night, end of the day, thinking that they're going to be able to get another another hold. And and look, that's great. Um, we we bring shed skins and stuff like that. We don't tend to throw the shed skins out from our snakes, and so we'll bring them along and we'll actually give them to kids and stuff like that. So we'll ask questions and 
you know, the person that gets the question right, they get a, a big piece of shed skin or something like that. And <laughs> and, it, and having that, you know, I mean, it's something that you would usually just throw away in the bin or put in the compost. Having that and actually being able to hand that to a kid, it can absolutely make their day. So um, from from for us, it's something that we find that we get a lot of enjoyment out of and we get a lot of reward out of as well. Yeah, and I know those kids, they don't forget. They don't forget that experience. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you've, you've been doing this for quite a while then, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I started doing demonstrations with other people first, um, and sort of that's how I got my my teeth in the door on that. And that was fantastic. But to, um, to be able to do that as a business um, has been fantastic. I don't work in the business these days full time. Um, my wife works in the business full time, so she is uh, doing the less glamorous side of the business as well for a lot of the time. Um, with regards to maintaining the the animals that we use in those demos. I see. And has your your business uh, been affected by the the COVID pandemic? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, it's been uh, yeah. quite quite uh, difficultly, uh, quite significantly um, affected. Um, obviously, we've got restrictions over here in regards to social distancing and, and things like that and, and trying to maintain a, a certain gap between people um, is is quite difficult. And then also, too, from the, the allowing people to touch the animal is also quite difficult, too, because it's not like you can, you can sterilise a snake. Right. Uh, so... It does make it difficult, um, but you know I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be. We're still trying to figure out some some COVID safe plans that are going to be conducive to to conducting these demonstrations in a way that uh, still provides the uh, the requirements to the kids to be able to touch the animals. We think that by as you were saying with what Steve was saying, as soon as you get them to touch that animal, you've got them locked in. So we want to make sure we're locking in as many kids as possible. Yeah. I have a, uh, I know somebody up in the Chicago area who does uh, uh, wildlife education with herps and, and her, you know, business is kind of just sitting there idle right now until, you know, everything is, we get through this. So, so uh, my hat, my uh, hats off to you guys for the work you do, and I, you know, I really hope that things, uh, you know, get better as we go into the, you know, twenty twenty one. Oh, look, it, it's it's going to get better. There's there's no point in sort of dwelling on the negative about it. It's it's so we've sort of used the time to to focus on other areas of the, our business. Um, we've done some some remodeling and things like that that we needed to do, and uh, been able to upgrade a few things, and then also to I've been able to. To, to focus and I've got a couple of papers that I've been sort of dragging my feet on on finishing them off. So I'll finish those off now and, um, you know, working on books and stuff like that sort of helps as well. So um, we've always well, that's a good segue. That's a yeah. good segue because you've got a number of books um, that you've uh, authored and co-authored. And I think your, your wife, Ty, has co-authored some of them as yep. well. Yeah, uh, and I'm I'm not going to read every title, but they're they're in what I, what uh, looks like the they're a series put out by Australian Geographic, and they they all they all have the same uh, a naturalist guide to 
snakes and frogs and dangerous creatures and lizards. So they have all these books for all these different uh, uh, critters. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So the um, the way that all sort of started was that I wrote a couple of books on on reptile husbandry. I wrote a book on on snake husbandry and another one on frog husbandry back in 2012. And I've always provided images and stuff like that to other books. And uh, a a friend of mine was doing a book on on reptiles of Australia, and he was telling me all about this book. And I said, "Oh, okay, fair enough." I said, "Well, I'll, I'll flick you some photos." And I, I flicked him some photos, and he said, "Oh, look, we're, we really want to do something on dangerous creatures, but we don't really know too much about it." And I said, "Well, I said I, I reckon I could probably do the, the vertebrate side of things. What do you think?" And he goes, "All right, no worries." So that that sort of turned up the dangerous creatures. And then while I was talking to the publisher, I said, "You know, it'd be good to do a, a book on frogs." And then they said, "Well, that's that sounds like a great idea, but..." We don't want to do frogs unless we illustrate every species and cover every species. That's fine. So we did that, and then halfway through doing the frog book, we ended up saying, I said to them, I said, well, how about a snake book? And they said, yep, that would be fantastic. So Ty and I ended up doing the snake book as well. Um, logically, as we were doing the snake book, well, hey, we should probably do lizards too. So so the lizard book is, is forthcoming. That will be out uh, in the first half of 2021. And, uh, yeah, so that's where we're at with those. But both the frog and the snake book have got photos of every single uh, species and subspecies of, of Australian frog and snake in those. Um, well, I'm going gonna, gonna to have to get my hands on those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, we'll, we'll work out a bit of a yeah. deal. I've got to get your field herping book, so we'll figure something out there. <laughs> okay. But oh, I... Um, so the whole idea of those books was to, uh, they weren't so much aimed at the herpetologist, they were more aimed at at uh, Farmer Joe and um, to who's got a snake in his backyard or the, the scout group that saw a snake or the, the bird watcher that happened to be wandering along and looked down at the ground and saw a snake. Uh, so that's what, what those books are aimed at. So they're, they're not uh, completely, they're not extremely technical or anything like that but they provide images of every species. They provide identification information of every species and, and a little bit of ecology uh, about the animals as well. So. I like that. That sounds great. Yeah. So, no, I'm that, that, very proud of them. Yeah, and that's your audience, really. You know, guys like me, we'll, we'll buy them, um, but, you know, it's important to keep those, you know, get those books out for the general populace. Yeah, you know, so the this. The snake book, there wasn't a a General Snakes of Australia book that hadn't been done since uh, the last one that was published was published in about 1991 um, or 1992, sorry. So it had been quite a wait between uh, between drinks, I suppose. Um, there'd been a, a, a fantastic field guide put out by uh, Steve Wilson and Jerry Swan on the Reptiles of Australia uh, that came out in 2003 and it's gone through it's now up to its sixth edition. Um, you know, taxonomy in, of Australian reptiles is an ever-changing thing. So there has been other books that have come out, but not one just on snakes. And, you know, the, the size of the publication, we wanted to make sure that it fit either into a backpack or into a glove box of a car or something like that. And it's it's cheap enough that 
you know, people would get the book and, you know, the, the kids have it and they've got that. That's their first snake book of Australian snakes. So, you know, I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that, you know, that's the sort of book that I got when I was a young kid. Uh, so maybe it's, it's now in the hands of, of the next, the next herpo that's out there that has, it doesn't know they're a herpo yet, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. They don't know it yet, but, uh, <laughs> soon there'll be one of us, right? Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm adding more to the flock, so to speak. Because birds are reptiles yeah. too; they just got feathers. That's all. <laughs> wow! So you have a you have a lizard book coming out, and any plans for more, or, or is this? Uh... Uh, we've always got things on the horizon. So um, you know, but at, at the moment we're um, not quite sure exactly which way we're going to go. But um, we've got a couple of other things on the on the horizon as well, but um, also too, you know, we've got papers and things like that that I want to work on and, um, and too. So we've got, we're always busy. That's for sure. Cool. And some of the things you were saying at, uh, we touched on uh, uh, some of the, just briefly on, on how things work there in terms of, you know, dealing with wildlife that's protected mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and how herpers operate in Australia. And I think that uh, there are some similarities and, and some differences in how, how that goes. And you sent me a, a nice little, um, I want to call it a, a, a herping procedures slash ethics guide for getting it done in Australia, which I thought was very interesting. And I noticed that uh, you have some of the same things uh, there were some similarities to how we do things over here in the States. And most of those really concern themselves with ethics, uh, which are kind of the same, you know, around the world. But you also have some differences uh, in terms of handling. Obviously, uh, your wildlife's protected, so you just can't be picking things up and uh, mucking around with them and putting them in a bag and taking them home. So we, I thought we could talk a little bit about some of that stuff, too. Uh so when you go out herping um, and you see a snake, you're you're basically going to try to take a picture of it or uh, observe it uh, w- without handling it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, the the Stevens Bandersnake, for instance, that um, I put up on your Facebook post the other day that I came across, um, that snake was initially crossing the road. I pulled the car up and I just waited until the snake moved off to the side and was was foraging in the leaf litter on the side of the road uh, before I was taking my photos. Um, so over here, we we cannot touch the animal. We can't even interact with the animal over here, legally speaking. So that would include picking it up with a stick or or actually physically picking it up with your hand. So it's, it's actually illegal. You're not allowed to do that. There is a couple of states that they allow certain people to do certain things obviously if you've got a permit you're able to to pick snakes up but that's not a permit that's easily obtained that permit has to go through an animal ethics committee there's there's all sorts of things that that have got to go through to to give you a permit to allow you to, to pick up animals in the wild and so for the most part most people don't have permits so they to operate legally they don't pick animals up and they don't retard an animal from getting away they don't 
pose the animal for po- for they're not allowed to pose animals for pictures and things like that. That's not to say that that people don't do it, um, but you know, technically or the legal definition, they they shouldn't be doing that for the for the most part. Well, and that problem that problem kind of solves itself with the with having so many highly venomous species too. It uh, kind of cuts down on that. Yeah, that, that cuts, and... Yeah, it cuts down on it, and also to the. Um, but I, I suppose that the on the conversing side of that as well is that there's a lot of people out there that that do get used to dealing with venomous snakes at a very young age, and they don't see the they don't they're not as threatened by a, a tiger snake as a brown snake that than they probably should be in a lot of ways. Um, ah. uh, you know, I, I caught a, a tiger snake when I was five years old, and um, completely by accident. It was it was no there was no skill on my part involved at all. It was all dumb luck. Um, but it just sort of goes to show how how likely these animals are to not bite people as well. So um, right. But also, too, I, I don't know about yourself, but I actually find that the in situ photos that I get of uh, of herps are something that are much more enjoyable. I I really love running around with a camera and stalking dragons and skinks and stuff like that. Um, yeah, sometimes you might have a stick in the way and you might have something not sitting exactly the way you like it, but, you know, that just gives you more more drive to get another photo of that species. And frogs as well. I, I, I don't think you can pose frogs that well. I always find that frogs sit much more naturally when they haven't been touched or disturbed. Yeah, I agree with that. Um and sometimes well, if you get too close, they hop away. And, and usually when they hop to a new location or, or jump to a new branch or something, they they have a more interesting pose anyway. So um, there's no, really no need to touch them. Yeah, and it, it doesn't matter if it's got a little bit of dirt on its back. You know, if, if the frog's got a little bit of dirt on its back, well, so be it. That's fine. That's how, <laughs> how the frog was when you saw it. It, it provides a much more... Um, a much more realistic image of that animal. I I have to agree with you because uh, um, I'm a big frog chaser from way back. And you find these things on a a branch at night and they got stuff on them. And one part, you know, if you're a purist, I guess you, you want to get that frog and douse it with water or something and get all the little bits of, you know, duff and, uh, little pieces of leaf or whatever that's sticking to the frog. But uh, um, I've kind of come around in my old age and wisdom to the, the idea that, well, that's just, that's how they do, right? That's, they got stuff on them. Well, I suppose the other side of it is if you're, if you're putting your photo, you're going to submit your photo for say a field guide or something like that. And the frog has got a little bit of dirt on its back. I'd much rather see that photo used that's got a little bit of dirt on its back because the person that's using that field guide, is chances are the frogs that they're looking at has got a bit of dirt on their back too. So yeah. it's probably actually a little bit more natural. Um, right. You know, and- so when, you, when, you, uh, when you're when you on Facebook or internet forums and Facebook groups and maybe the old uh, field herb forum and you look at all the photos that people have of carefully posed snakes and frogs and stuff that must be quite quite a different experience for you uh, as opposed to people who just kind of grow up doing that stuff yeah oh look i, I suppose I, I look at those posed photos and, and and don't get me wrong i'm not saying that i've i've never posed animals when i've had permits of it 
um, had permits for, for all of Queensland and, and stuff like that and other states to, to capture animals and, um, you know, taking samples of them and, you know, removing them from places and stuff like that. So, um, you know, if I wanted to take a photo of that animal, then I'm going to pose it up as well. So, you know, there's I also photograph captive animals as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm very used to posing animals and for, for photos, and I'm certainly not anti-posing, I just like the the whole in situ side of things wherever possible. Um, but look, I see a photograph like a, a work of art. You know, we're all artists in a lot of ways when we take our photos. Um, yeah. But the other side of it for me is also, I look back at my photos and I can go. I was photographing in film days, so every time you press the button, it used to cost you a dollar um, between the film <laughs> costs and the and the developing afterwards. Um, and so I go back to those days. I look at photos from, from trips I did to Northern Territory back in, in the mid-90s. And by looking at that photo of that that carpet python or that death adder or that yellow-spotted monitor, I can remember uh, other parts of that trip. So it's like a, a visual jog down memory lane and you get to almost enjoy the herping experience all over again. Um, right. And I think a lot of a lot of people do that as well. I'm sure that when you look at photos of um, uh, your your cobra from Southeast Asia or, or something like that, that takes you back to your time when you were you were herping in Thailand. Oh yeah, it's um it's a pleasurable experience to to go back through that stuff and uh you know you have memories start coming back of the trip and other things that happened and or or even the moment itself it. it uh, that's the one great thing about photography. It's just that uh, you can capture stuff and then, uh, like you say, 20, 20, 30 years later, it brings it all back. Most definitely. And I think that the best thing I, I like about photography as well is it gives an insight into other people's viewpoints as well. Um, you know, you can, you can try and recreate a photo, but you're never going to recreate it perfectly. And, People have got their own way. Everyone's got their own slight twist on the way that they like to take their photos. And you start to see, uh, it's almost like walking a mile in someone else's shoes. It, it, you see the way other people sort of pick up on animals and stuff like that as well. It's, it's very, very interesting. My wife, she likes taking photos, but she uses a Canon. I use a Nikon. So, um, oh. so that's always interesting. Uh, but her... <laughs> The photos that she likes, she hates a lot of my photos, and she's quite happy to say that she hates a lot of my photos, <laughs> um, and that and that's fine too. Um, but she takes a different photo to me, and she gets a different. She looks at a different angle of the animal, and she sees other things that I don't see, and I see things that she doesn't see. So it's it's always interesting to see those different sides. That's for sure. Yeah, and I, I have learned a lot just from looking at other people's photos and uh, maybe other people's photo collections just to get an idea for what how they do it or how they see it. Um, and you can you can learn from that. Um, it's yeah. not even the technical stuff. It's not the technical aspects of photography. It's more the just things like composition and um, perspective on, on the animal and and what's important. What you know, what, uh, what are you trying to pull out of the, uh, you know, or capture with regard to the animal? So there's, yeah. there's a lot you can learn from other people. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's also something that you can share as well. Um, you can share those those experiences with other people, and you know, it's, it's, I love giving talks to to various herb societies and stuff like that, where you just get an excuse to to put up, you know, a hundred and hundred and thirty odd images and have a captive audience that you can go, oh, and say, well, when I was here, I, I found this and this is what I was doing. And, and you can retail some, some interesting stories to people and have a few laughs. And, um, you know, for me, the dissemination of information, whether it be to a herb society or in an article in a magazine or in a, in a book is just another form of outreach that we have to our community to potentially educate those a little bit more about um, reptiles and amphibians and hopefully uh, sort of leave an impression that people are less likely to, to hurt those animals and do better for the environment. Yeah. It, how many, um, I was thinking about this when you're talking about herb societies and things, mm. What? how many people are involved in in amphibians and reptiles in, well, let's just say in your, your area, uh, are there a, lo- a lot or are there a hundred or what's the general population of that look, look like? So in Southeast Queensland, where, where I am in the greater Southeast Queensland area, there's about 4 million people. So it's, it's not, not one or two. Um, there is a, a single museum. There's a couple of wildlife parks and a couple of zoos. Then you've got some uh, ecology companies and some some fauna fauna people and all the rest of it. There's probably around maybe a hundred herpetologists uh, slash ecologists in the Brisbane area that are that are employed. Uh, and then for private private keepers and enthusiasts and stuff like that, there's that are active in the in the herp community. There's probably a couple of hundred. Uh, and then other people that are just keeping a, a bearded dragon or a carpet python as a pet, there's probably quite a few thousand of those. But the community over here seems to be much smaller than the, what there is over in the US uh, and, and other parts of the world. Why that is, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious. And uh, I asked the same question uh, recently to... Uh, uh, I don't know if you know him or not. Jeroen Spaybrook, uh from Belgium. And, oh, I've, heard, uh, I've heard of the name. You, you know him? And uh, I asked him the same question about, you know, herper densities in Europe. And mm. uh, there's not a lot of them over there. There's some, but but not not like the United States. The United States just kind of, it's just kind of popped over here in the past decade or so. And oh, we have quite a few people out there now doing it. And uh, it's... Uh, becoming more like birding there's there's more and more people uh getting involved with with wildlife over here in australia that are that are looking to to see wildlife Uh, so there's quite a few groups over here that do uh wildlife tours you've got these pteropod type twitching people that you know a pteropod for for lack of a better term is a mammal a bird a reptile and an amphibian and so they they have these lists of all of the various species, and they want to go out and see as many as they can. I quite like the idea of that. It's a it's an interesting way to to go out and see animals, as long as they're not causing any damage to the environment. Um, but we are seeing a greater number of groups that 
are going out to look at animals. Now, whether that's, it might also be due to social media in that everybody seems to put whatever they're doing on social media up and there's these groups on social media and, you know, as we're, you and I are both herpers, we tend to see what's going on in the herper groups. And so while there may have always been lots of people out there herping, we are now sort of shown shown more people herping by people putting up their photos and things like that. Yeah, I mean, and that's to be expected in this. With the technology we have, it, it's, a, you know, you can be standing there watching the whale and then sending somebody a, a picture or a video of it, at, you know, as it, as it happens, so. Yeah, well, I mean, on my my Nikon camera, the, the when I updated the body most recently, it's got this snap bridge function on it, and so that will talk. Uh, it will send the photo from the the camera directly to my phone within a couple of minutes of me taking the image, and then you can be putting it up on social media a few minutes later if you so desired. So it's um, you know, technology is pretty amazing things. The fact that I don't have to worry about my memory cards are having a meltdown and losing photos from a trip, particularly with species that are really hard to find is a, is a really nice thing to, to have in the back yeah. pocket. Yeah. Yeah, really. Um, as, as far as um, herping in other parts of the, of the country, do you get around much to the uh, other areas? You talk about going up to the Northern territories. Do you do that very often or? Uh, I sort of get all over Queensland. I mean, Queensland's a, a massive area. Um, you can you can drive for three thousand kilometers or two and a half thousand kilometers in Queensland and still be in Queensland. Um, so it's a it's a pretty significant size place. Um, but I do get down to New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria. I've been over to Western Australia, WA, Tassie. I've been all over Australia chasing various bits and pieces. So. Um, Generally speaking, when I'm going to a different state, I'm targeting particular species and to, to try and see. And for me, I'm usually targeting the small range endemic uh, endemics wherever possible because the way I figure it, you'll see the big stuff at the same time when you chase those little endemics. Yeah. Uh, over here, we, we call that bycatch. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the big ones are bycatch. So, you know, people want to go out and see... You know, they might want to go and see a an Owen Pelly python or something like that. Well, Owen Pelly pythons might be your main target, but you're going to see all these interesting skinks and and geckos and stuff like that while you're there as well. So, target I, habitat I have a feeling, I have a feeling that when I get over there, I'm going to spend a lot of time with a long lens with all these skinks uh, and lizards. I think you're going to really enjoy yourself when you eventually get over here. The um. The herping here in Australia is amazing. Um, you know, we've got a, a relatively large suburban block and we've got eight, we've had six species of snake on our block, just oh, on our wow. block alone, um, and about 10 species of lizard and six species of frog we've had on our block. So it's, it's, a, it's not a bad place to be, that's for sure. Yeah, when I look at uh, the logistics of coming over there and it's like, well, where do I want to go? And what do I want to see? And obviously, there, there are some critters that are the, um, um, you know, the gems that everybody wants to come over and see. They want to see the moloch, and you know, they want. There's pythons that are on people's lists and things like that. So it makes it kind of hard to figure out uh, what are you, where are you going to go, and 
what are you going to try to to get uh, and how far are you willing to drive and <laughs> how long can you stay and I, I suppose the the beauty of australia uh is that you know it's a, a pretty easy place to to get around um don't get me wrong you can get yourself into trouble very very easily um but the the people are very friendly the infrastructure is extremely good so if you you wanted to come over, hire a car, and go for a drive. It's it's really not too hard at all. The fact that it's English speaking and all the rest of it makes it nice and easy. Um, don't ask me to show you a Moloch though. I've found seventeen dead on road animals. I've never found a live one. Oh, oh. They're like my. They're one of my unicorns. Unfortunately. Oh, that's that's too bad. Uh, I feel for you. That's that's heart. That's heartbreaking. I'm going to. I think a tear is going to roll down my eye when I finally see a live one uh, in the field. <laughs> that's for sure. They're absolutely amazing little critters, so I love them. But I only see them find them smushed. Ah, uh, hard to take sometimes. Yeah, considering everybody sees them, bar me. Everybody sees them in huge numbers, bar me. So it's just one of those things. Mm. So they they occur close. Close by where you live, or I'm not sure of the range of these things. No, so they, from they're, they're more of a central, yeah, they're central, central Australian species. Um, yeah, as the crow flies, it's about they're about 1200 kilometers away from me. So, Ooh. so it's not a not a five minute trip down the road. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, you can jump on a plane and you know, four or five hours later, you're in, in Mollock country and and you give them a crack, I suppose. But, uh-huh. Yeah, it's just, just one of those animals. I, I haven't done a hell of a lot of herping in Central Australia either. I've, I've done most of my stuff has been on the uh, on the eastern seaboard, um, but there's still quite a few places I'm yet to to get out and go chasing critters here too. So, you know, there's there's lots of gems out there that uh, for either time or finances or both, I, I haven't had, had a chance to get to yet. I understand. Um I can't remember which country is larger, Australia or the United States, uh, but uh, we both live in uh, large places that it's really difficult to see everything and go everywhere. Yeah, oh, definitely. Just because of distance. Yeah, distance. And I suppose, too, you know, we um, it's it, for us, it's time is, is a big thing as well. Um, you know, trying yeah. to... For us to try and get away as well, we've got a fairly large collection of animals that we use for our demonstrations. So it's not like we can just go, oh, yeah, we're going to go away for, for, for a week. Um, we need to work out the logistics of going away for a week, but then also to making sure that uh, the animals are all looked after properly. And you can't just go, oh, can you just come in and look after the, the dozen taipans that we have here? Uh, it's, oh. it's not it's not an easy thing to do, that's for sure. Uh, you can't see me, but my eyebrows just went way up. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about uh, taking care of taipan, so yeah. Oh, uh, look, they're, they're they're okay. They're just like goldfish. You don't pick them up. Oh, wow! Uh, and so, uh, let me talk to you for a minute about this. You have to have permits to to have these animals, and they're you know you have them for education and whatnot, but. Do you have to jump through a lot of hoops to 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 do that? Yeah. So my my last license application. Uh, so uh, we have to, uh, in my case, we've got a, a biosecurity license, which allows us to do demonstrations to the public. 
Um, so it's a higher level of license than just your private private keeper. Um, but we have species management plans for every single one of the species that we have. We have uh, emergency procedures. We have uh, bite protocols. We have escape protocols. We have every every document under the sun. We have um, protocols for husbandry. We have protocols for feeding. And so all of those documents need to be provided to the licensing body uh, for approval before they, before you are granted your permit. So to give you an idea, we're, we've got my last license application was about 430 pages worth of docs. Holy cow. So Holy cow. Um, we're, we're quite detailed in our submission. We're probably, we go a little bit overboard on what we need to. There's a lot of re- repetition because the management of a, a collet snake is, is almost identical to the management of a spotted black snake, but you still need to provide that information. So um, it's a, a significant uh, document that you produce that you, you send across to them. But at the same time, if people want to keep these animals in, in captivity and they want to do things properly, then they should do them. They should actually provide this documentation, and I don't think it should be as easy as just paying your money across the to a a government agency and ticking a few boxes and getting your permit. Um, there should be some checks and balances there. Right. Uh, does somebody inspect your facility? Uh, yeah. Or do you yep. have to provide? Yeah, so we had to provide images and and stuff like that, and and we've been audited before, uh, and you know by providing those images and and all the rest of it, it's 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 not for us. It's not too much of a problem, uh, but certainly other people have had issues where you know their their caging was not uh, up to standard or anything like that, and we we take very seriously the the ethics not only of field herping but also the ethics of uh, of husbandry of animals as well. So we want to make sure that we're providing those animals with the the, the very best care that we can um, because we see it as a privilege as opposed to a right. Oh, well, I like that. I think that's great. I think that's great. And so uh, it, it also makes it, uh, I can't imagine there's a lot of people that have captive uh, elapids, for example, um, just because of all the, the paperwork and, all the work you have to do to to get there. Yeah, there's there's certainly less people with with captive elapids as opposed to um, carpet pythons and things like that. At the same time, there still is quite a few people that keep them here, and you know we're a a, a supporter of people keeping uh, venomous snakes privately, provided that they uh, they do it in a safe manner. Okay, uh, and for the folks out there that. You mentioned keeping like a bearded dragon. It, they have a, also have their permits and protocols for that. Yeah, certainly do. They've got permits and stuff like that. The the permits for for keeping a bearded dragon or a carpet python or something like that are, uh, are much easier to obtain. It's basically they pay pay some money to a government department, and uh, they they keep the animals. We also have a there's animal welfare legislation over here that they not only have to uh, abide by the regulations for wildlife, but they also need to abide by the animal cruelty regulations. So there's a code of, codes of practice and things like that on how to heat an enclosure, temperatures, humidity, 
lighting, all that sort of stuff. So all that information is out there. And, you know, for the most part, people look after animals well. Good. Well, let me ask you, too, about importing reptiles and amphibians from other countries. Now, obviously, the cane toad is has not gone well over there. So I imagine it's very difficult to get or probably impossible to get, uh, uh, you know, yeah, for any a, kind for of private, wildlife. Yeah, for a private individual, uh, it's functionally impossible to import any wildlife or export any wildlife out of the country, um, which I, th- I think is... Uh, certainly the importation, I, I don't think that anyone should be allowed to import uh, animals here. Some museums, some zoos and some uh, universities have, able to, have been able to bring in live, uh, live wildlife for, for various reasons, but they've obviously had to obtain permits from the, from the federal government and the state governments on on how to do that, there's quarantine procedures and all the rest of it. So um, right. it's certainly a, a very long-winded process and um, with lots of checks and balances, and so it should be. The exportation of animals as well is also that it's only zoos and um, zoos and institutions effectively can can export animals out of the country as well. Um, okay. And, I, again, I think that's a good thing. Um you know, there is potentially at some point in time, you know, there might be a way that people could potentially export captive animals, but that would be a huge, huge rigmarole and a whole lot of things that would need to happen. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to, I'm, I'm not going to be part of that. That's for sure. That sounds like a way too big a headache for me. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, undoubtedly, there are many people who would be interested in obtaining captive bred uh, Australian organisms and you know on a few things come to mind obviously some of the more um charismatic species but uh um, but at the same time i suppose unfortunately most of that stuff's been uh smuggled over uh into europe and the u.s at some point in time and, and you know you guys have got i think you guys have got just about all the species of pythons that are in australia and you know yep. basically all of the You've got more goanna species over there in captivity than we do. Um, there's quite a few mm. of the, uh, for instance, the uh, the glouts, glouts rock monitor, the long-tailed rock monitor, um, has been bred in the US for many, many years, but it's it's almost not kept in captivity over here until recently. So, But I this see. is a field herping podcast. Let's talk about field herping. <laughs> this is much more interesting. <laughs> rather than talking about bloody captive yeah. animals. Um, the one thing <laughs> well, I love true. about your podcast, Mike, is it's it's got next to nothing to do with captivity. And, um, you know, I, I, we have animals essentially for in captivity for educational purposes. We, we do enjoy them as well, but, you know, I'd much rather be a field herper, that's for sure. So, well, me, uh, me too, and I made a conscious decision. You know, well, it really wasn't much of a decision for me to, to leave the captive herps out of it. Um, I mean, I've, you know, kept things and I have a, a herd of red foot tortoises that I've had for going on three decades now, but, uh, I, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm interested in. Yeah. And, uh, it, that's plenty big enough for me. I don't need, to, <laughs> I really don't need to get into captive herps cause I've got plenty to talk about and 
uh, no end of people to talk to like yourself. So <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you know, uh, look, the, I suppose the the one advantage of having captive captive lapids is it does keep my my handling skills on point, so to speak, when it comes to the dealing with things. Um, but I can uh, imagine. But at the same time, I mean, it's it's also led to to me likely becoming allergic to snake venomous through my my management of um, captive animals. So you know, I've, oh my, I've developed anaphylaxis from some proteins in snake venom, uh, and that reared its ugly head out in the field when I was bitten by a, a mildly venomous snake that um, that I had captured, and it promptly bit me on the finger and I thought, well, it's only a, a medically insignificant species. What more could it do? And you know, 20 minutes later, I'm, I'm struggling to breathe and, and all the rest oh of my. it. So uh, I, I put those photos up in um, when I deliver talks to, uh, to herb societies uh, of me going into anaphylaxis, which a, a friend of mine quite happily took. As he as he nervously was laughing as he was taking the photos as we were trying to rush back to the hospital, and the whole idea of me putting up those photos is to sort of impart the the other side of herping uh, when it all goes goes wrong, I suppose, to particularly to young people, uh, not to assume that just because it's medically insignificant doesn't mean to say it, it may not hurt you at some point in time. That's a very good point, too. And I've recently come around to that point of thinking uh, as well. And not not necessarily, I mean, I have, I've had a, a one small bite from a, a rear fang snake, but uh, uh, just the the idea that some of these things that we, we sort of wave off, these, these snakes that we wave off as, oh, they're not, like you say, medically significant, uh, may not be. Um, and, and, it may vary from person to person how they react to them. Yeah, I mean, even things like um, the trade on the the uh, the hognose snakes that you guys have over there, they're a rear fanged natrosine uh, species that that do have they do have venom, and if they happen to get a decent chew on, then eventually you you, know, you might get a reaction to it. Um, if you get lots and lots of bites from hognoses or garter snakes or something like that. Who knows what's going to happen? That foreign protein in your body is still a foreign protein, and if your immune system decides to have a a significant response to it, you can be in all sorts of trouble. Yes, um, you know it's it's better to hear us talking about these things and having people experience them, you know, firsthand and finding out the hard way. Well, I explain to people if they want to know what anaphylaxis feels like, go and get a drinking straw and try and breathe through it for five minutes. Oh my, yeah, that's what it's like. And it's and that the scary part about it is that it's almost like suffocating really slowly. Um, the first minute or so, it's not so bad because you still have that residual oxygen in your lungs, and so you can still take it. But then you get to a point where you start to hyperventilate, and because you cannot get enough oxygen in or out uh before you pass out eventually so it's, it's not a it's not a good thing so you know in my my herping backpack um i carry both antihistamines and i also carry a couple of epipens oh okay yeah uh it's one of those things like a bitten by snakes yeah uh we 
when I uh, go to Peru, we also have EpiPens on hand just in just in case, you know, when you're you're a hundred kilometers from anywhere and somebody somebody has a reaction like that, that's good to have a, a couple of those hanging around. Oh, definitely, most definitely. And you know, it's like everything, it's 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 important to check your field gear. I, I can't sort of impart that on people enough, uh, particularly with, with young herpers that, you know, making sure that, you know, you've got water, that you've, you've got a roll of bog paper, you know, how many times, it, you know, you, you don't want to be using leaves, um, that's for sure, and there's no toilets um, out in the middle of the bush. So, um, right. you know, things like that are a very much a benefit. I, I also went through a, um, a bit of an incident about five years ago where I didn't drink enough water when I was out herping and I got severely dehydrated and ended up getting 30 centimetres of my bowel removed due to dehydration. So, Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty significant. And my wife takes almost like a sadistic pleasure in some ways in reminding me to make sure I take more water when I go out herping and not just to drink uh, soft drink and, and other other things as opposed to just water itself. So um, drink more water out there, guys, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm number one, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to step forward and, and share that because it's, uh, it's, it is important. And um, I've been in a couple situations, not quite that drastic, but a couple situations where it's like, oh, man, I really should have had more water. And uh, I, don't, I don't care where you live out on, on this planet, you, you better bring extra water. Uh, so that's a good reminder to our listening audience there. And yours is not the first didn't bring enough water story <laughs> that, I've, <laughs> that I've featured. And, and uh, there'll be one more coming, uh, one more episode featuring that between uh, the time we record this and the time uh, this airs. So <laughs> it's a common, it's a common thread, right? Well, that's the thing, you know, we, we, we're all, you know, I suppose when we're out herping, that the thing that's foremost in front of us is that, you know, we don't want to have a venomous snake bite out in the field. And so we might take into consideration things that uh, mitigate snake bite, you know, so whether it be making sure you have compression bandages in Australia for, for our snake bite first aid or, you know, whether you're whatever other means that you use over in the US for snake bite. Um you, you think about that. You don't tend to think about sprained ankles or broken legs or anything like that. Like I was walking up a waterfall uh, in the rainforest. It was about a 17-kilometre hike into this particular site that I was going into. As I'm climbing up this waterfall, for lack of a better term, because it was only about six metres high, I've gone to grab the tree branch. The tree branch has snapped and down I went. Uh, and I happened to land in a big pile of leaves and I was a bit sore and all the rest of it, but not three feet from where I landed, there was a whole heap of jagged rocks. Now, if I'd landed on those jagged rocks from that height, if I didn't have a, a break, I would have been very surprised. And it was just dumb luck that I didn't hurt myself really significantly. Um, and you were by, were you by yourself? No, I tend to go away with somebody else when I'm when I'm doing those sorts of walks. I'll I'll night drive and stuff like that by myself if my, if Ty doesn't want to come along. But um, for the most part, I'm if I'm out in a fairly remote area, I'm usually with somebody else. 
I, I, I think that's a good idea. I, I have done some dumb things hiking by myself as well uh, in places where if I had broken a leg uh, or something or had a hand injury, um, nobody would find me for perhaps weeks or months. And that was, you know, so I've learned uh, to think about that thing before you before I head out. Maybe uh, I don't attempt those things on the solo trips. You know, I go find somebody to come with me. Yeah, I think the other side of it is that, you know, if I do go out by myself, the one thing I do is I always, you know, let somebody, usually my wife, know where I'm going and, and where I'm at. Um, yeah. And that way, you know, if if something does go tits up, uh, at least there's some form of um, sort of, oh, yeah, he, he was here and I haven't heard him, hadn't heard from him for two days. Uh, I think you need to go and have a look. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it doesn't ever get to there, but oh, you know, hooping with somebody else is good fun. So it's more fun. Than yeah. People. Well, yeah, yeah. I'd rather, I'd much rather do that way. Uh, as far as cell phone reception, is that an issue when you get out uh, away from town? I think it's fantastic that my phone doesn't work when I get out of town. <laughs> it's great. I don't get phone calls. Yeah. Look, in a lot of places, cell phones are are really poor over here. Uh, from what I understand, there's. There's pretty good cell phone coverage over in the US, whereas over here, outside of the city centres, it's it's pretty average. Okay, I was just curious about that too because we're we're kind of spoiled, I, I think, in many places in the US where uh, you can be harping all day and still have at least a, a bar of service, if not more, and um, because we have you know such pervasive telecommunication system. Uh, and it's kind of sometimes it's kind of hard to lose your cell phone coverage. Yeah, well, to go to a place like Mount Isa, um, you'll go through between sort of my place and there is it's about eighteen hundred kilometres. You'll go through three places where you've got mobile service in that eighteen hundred kilometres. Oh wow! So okay. you know you might not have phone service for three or four hundred kilometres. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. And I'm sort of filing this away too. You know, it's like, oh, these for my uh, list of things to consider when I come to Australia. (laughs) Uh, When you, when you, when you're looking to come to Oz, let me know and I will, I'll give you the, uh, the lay down on where you choose to go on on what to expect with regards to that. Okay. Very good. Very good. There's so much I I would love to see over there. I, I I really love the, uh, the Strophurus geckos. I think those are, fantastic yep. and uh i think um pretty much anything that you have i would be interested in seeing over there uh and yeah. crocs are crocs are big for me too i'd love to love to see those uh freshwater crocs and the uh, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence that's for sure i could think of nothing better than going out and looking at some rattlesnakes and stuff like that so um, ah. you know i I see the photos that and the videos and stuff that get put up of Snake Road and and the sheer numbers of of some of the animals that you guys see over there and you know to to go along and see cottonmouths and timber rattlesnakes and you know rough green snakes and garter snakes and all that sort of stuff would be amazing to me you know I'd be so excited to see those things too so you know it's it's the same wherever you go that there's always the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence you know that's true that's true. Um, but I enjoy taking people to Snake Road since that's sort of my home turf. So, uh, yeah. you ever come over? 
you ever come over this way, make sure you let me know. And um, yeah, well, I, I will. And likewise, if you ever come over here, I'll take you out chasing leaf tail geckos and Stevens banded snakes and all sorts of interesting oh, things. Wow. I, I've had the privilege of, of taking over some, taking out some some pretty accomplished herpers over the years to various places. So, you know, I'll, I'll oh, lead wow. you to the list. Okay, awesome. Is there other places you'd like to go around the world, or other places you've been? I'm I'm not sure where you've where you've traveled to. So I haven't done much overseas travel. I've been over to Samoa. I had to go over to Samoa for work, uh, and so I I herp Samoa and. Got mm. every species in in Samoa by by a couple of the didn't get the sea snakes, um, oh. but got all the lizards and stuff, which was pretty cool. I missed out on the Kandoya. That was the only only thing I missed out on uh, over Ooh. there. But you know, such as life, that's it is what it is. But it was it was very different. Herping in a different country is a is a completely different experience. Um, you know, over there you you get in these little taxis and that no one essentially drives cars you don't hire a car over there you just hire a taxi and it costs a couple of dollars australian to to get a taxi pretty much anywhere and so you go all right well take me here and i'll go looking for this and then you talk to the locals where are the snakes and they're like oh we don't have snakes here there's snakes here i have i have a book that says there's snakes here i've got a a fantastic little field guide to the the reptiles of the pacific and I, I took that with me and I basically said, right, everything that was in Samoa, this is what I want to go and see. So, you know, I I contacted some friends who'd done some herping over there before and said, where do I go? And they said, yeah, go to this place for this and this place for this. And there's a lot of species of Amoya, which are a, a type of skink over there, and yeah. they are incredibly fast. Um, and so I was literally stalking them with a long lens and – just about all of my Amoya photos that I got over there were all in situ. And, you know, I look back at those photos and I'm like, wow, how good is this? And so, you know, um, yeah, but itching to get over and uh, over to the US, that's probably one of one of my number one sort of herping wants to go and see is, is I'd love to see a, a black-tail rattlesnake in the wild and I'd love to see a, a Gila monster. So, oh, yeah. yeah. They're my top two, and you know my wife. All she wants to see is a rattlesnake, and so you know I'm really lucky in that my wife's a herpo as well. And um, you know it's it's pretty easy to say, hey, let's go do this. So uh, yeah, it's um, yeah. we're both running at the animals ourselves. You know, sounds like uh, Arizona is your destination for maximum rattlesnake 100%. and heel monster. Hundred percent. Well, we were COVID sort of stuffed us, but we had a trip planned, and um, yeah, that was going to be the trip that we were we were going from San Diego across to Arizona and into Texas, and then then back again, sort of thing, back into to Cali. So um, we were going to go down to to the Chihuahua, Chiricahua, Chiricahua Mountains down there, and then um, you know uh, go and go to the Desert Museum and go see some of those Sky Islands and go chasing lepidus and all that sort of cool stuff. But um, thanks very you much, know, COVID. I, <laughs> yeah, really, really. And I hear you talking about it, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that all sounds great to me. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds pretty I, good. <laughs> I spent a fair bit of time going through the old field hurt forum, you know, just salivating over 
over photos of, of Molossus and Lepidus and Price Eye and, and all these fantastic sort of critters and, you know, from the, the days of the kingsnake.com uh, people, you know, I've got some quite a few friends over in the US and they routinely put up photos of these amazing animals and I'm just like, yeah, got to go and see them at some point in time. So um, It's funny. We all, we all have our pilgrimages. 100%. Uh, <laughs> and a bushmaster for me that's probably the the number one exotic species of uh snake for me to go and see so at some point in time uh, going down and chasing a lachias would be a something absolutely amazing as well yeah that's uh that's big game right there <laughs> uh, nah. yeah, that's right. it's yeah. like an 11 foot long death adder uh, yeah there I, I you know i've seen a few and uh it doesn't get old and the, you know, you get those six, seven footers. They're just impressive animals. It's just, uh, it's not like your, your wiggly little, uh, uh, leptotyphalops or, or, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to believe they're the same organ, you know, same class, uh, classification of uh, organisms. You know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it... Majestic animal. Yeah. I, I suppose, I mean, I worked with, Taipans now for 24 years I've had I've, I've had Taipans for so it's you know you you get used to being around big large fast moving elapids and and dangerously venomous snakes and you then look at something like a bushmaster and for me it's got nothing to do with how venomous the species is or anything to do with that there's no machoism or anything like that it's just this amazing sort of a in some ways, in my mind, it's almost the very upper echelon of any of the the pit vipers in in North America. It's you know the uh, sorry in South America, in that you know they they've evolved to lay eggs as opposed to uh, having live birth. You know they've got these huge huge animals that have got these you know horn like scales almost where they've got these projections on them to to allow the water to get away from them so they stay drier and they they don't have the they've got that sort of thing for humidity you know the, you know it's a pit viper big pit viper that's that happens to be and a very attractive species as well you know it's it's um, yeah yeah amazing animal king of the rainforest yeah yeah and and what silent fate as its name as well like how good is that <laughs> yeah they just they it's like the king cobra, you know. There's just mystique. Uh, there's certain large serpents, venomous serpents. Have all you know, the taipan has it as well. They have this mystique that they that carry around with them, and it sort of amplifies our our vision of what the animal is. You know. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely. I'd love to say a king cobra in the world too, as well. It's it's who um, me, me too. You know. I, I was talking to Ron Whitaker about it and I took him out herping over here and, and he said, you know, you've got to come over to Agumbe and and come and see us where we track the kings and, and go out radio tracking with the they've the Agumbe Rainforest Lodge over in the southwestern India and the Western Ghats have got this um they've got this radio telemetry study of King Cobras going on and you know, you can tag along and basically follow the researchers um seeing king cobras in the wild. And for me, that would be so much better than than seeing a king cobra crossing a road. Actually seeing a king cobra doing what it does naturally in the environment would be absolutely amazing. 
I I have to agree with you there. Um, the times when when you come across an animal, just whatever it's doing, foraging or uh, like a, an ambush predator coiled like a rattlesnake, you know, just coiled and waiting. When you just stumble across them doing what they do, that's much better, a much better experience, I think. So, and you learn more too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, especially, I, you know, I I spent uh, many years ago. I spent uh, a short period of time helping someone uh, radio track some timber rattlesnakes, and I, I felt like I learned more about timber rattlesnakes. Uh, in that short time than I, I had all the times previously, just because I got to see them basically doing what they do when nobody's around, you know? And, uh, you know, I've seen a few crossing the road or crossing the trail or whatever. And, and, and that's typically how I would find them, but just to, to see them coiled up next to a log or, or, you know, moving around on a, on a hillside, looking for a place to, to coil up and hunt that, you know, that, those times are, to me, the, the most interesting and the most informative. I think, too, as you get older as well, you start to be more more cognizant of watching the animal as opposed to having to capture it to get a photo or or whatever. And so you, you're much more and more willing to, oh, okay, there's that, there's that red-bellied black snake, okay, and well, you see it and you quietly creep up to it to try and get a photo, but then the snake decides to move off. And if you, you, you keep some significant distance between you and the snake, you can actually watch that snake and do what that, see what that snake's doing. And, you know, I, I watched a red belly not too long ago hunting along a stream and, you know, he was going along the edge of the stream and he'd stick his head in underneath rocks trying to, um, trying to flush out tadpoles and things like that from underneath the, the rocks in the stream. That for me is a much more interesting uh, interaction than sort of watching the snake sort of shoot off into the scrub because you've disturbed it because you got too close to it. Yeah, it's 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 good to hear that from you too because it seems to be a becoming a common theme that people have. You know, as I interview people, they tell me these interesting incidents just like that with you know you watching this thing forage along a stream and uh, that stuff gets me excited. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's a it's it's a, a fantastic thing. You, you know, the leaf-tail geckos over here are, are very common in the rainforest in some locations, and you know, you we use a technique over here called eye shining a lot. Um, it doesn't seem to to happen so much in other parts of the world. People are worried about bugs flying into their face, um, so they don't tend to do it. But it's a a very productive way of seeing a lot of animals. Uh, in the wild without actually disturbing them because you're picking up on the, the reflection from their retinas. And, you know, you've got these little baubles of light off out in the distance and you, you go along, you walk up to them, you see these animals sitting in situ. And, you know, leaf-tailed geckos, they stand up almost doing like a, a reverse push-up off the tree, looking down effectively as an ambush predator, ambushing any bugs that go underneath that tree and you you sit back and you watch them from quite a distance. Every now and then, you'll actually see them take a, a bug or a beetle off the off the tree off the tree trunk, which is amazing now, to watch. Um, now that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I I, I could get into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're 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 uh, the the carpodactylid geckos, the the leaf tail geckos, and the thick tail geckos, and uh, are absolutely amazing amazing animals here. 
Do you have a favorite? Is it snakes the the big thing for you, or are you just a, a generalist? Oh, I have favorites in all of them, but um, red belly black snakes are, are something that I absolutely love, and taipans also too. Coastal taipans are uh, fantastic yeah. as well. You know, there's a not to anthropomorphize, but the, there is a, a part, there is, is some intelligence with coastal taipans. Um, they recognize individual people. Uh, they behave differently around individuals. They uh, There's something going on. When you look at them, they are looking at you as well, that's for sure. Well, those, that's an animal that hunts by sight, correct? Uh... Yeah. Yeah, they hunt by sight, so they're quite visually acute. Uh, acute. Um, but there's also there's a couple of interesting books on, on them as well. There's a, a fantastic book called The Taipan by... Philip Kendall and Paul Macy, and uh, that book talks about some stories about people field herping for taipans uh, back in the 40s and 50s here where they were trying to capture them for, for any event of production. And they would talk about taipans that when they were chasing them, they would go to capture them, but the snake would not use certain bits of apparent cover it would avoid railway sleepers that are directly in front to go down a, a railway sleeper another 10, 20 feet away. The difference was, but underneath the railway sleeper, that snake went under was a, a cavern or something like that. So the snake actually had some, some spatial understanding about where it was and was choosing to go down a uh, beneath a hide that was a secure hide as opposed to just the nearest hide to it. Um, so they, they've got this sort of form, some form of memory and, you know, the, our captive animals, you can see the, the same sorts of things where the snake knows where the food food comes in. It knows where the heat heat gets turned on and, you know, 20 minutes before the, the, the timers switch on for the heating for that enclosure, the snakes are curled up ready and waiting in the, uh, in the area that's going to be warm. So they're very, very interesting to animals to, to work with. Very cool. It, it's just interesting to hear you talking about that. Snakes carrying around this little spatial map of their yep. of their territory. Yeah, and, and I think that there's more snakes actually have got that than when people realize as well. Um, you know, if you look at some of the ways that I'm sure that when you've uh, seen animals over the, over the years, you've gone, well, why did it do it like that? And then you, you sort of start to realize oh these animals might actually have some knowledge the other thing that you'll tend to find is that they'll usually bask in the same places at the same times of year as well so you know you might go back to a you might have a log along snake road or something like that that there's usually a a copperhead or a cottonmouth or something like that basking at the edge of um chances are sometimes it's the same snake that knows that that's a, a good basking site or it's a good refuge or whatever yeah, I, I have a, I've known a couple uh, cottonmouths that way, yeah. where I would uh, see the same individual uh, in the basically the same I don't know same few square meters of an area they would they would be there, yeah, uh, either basking or foraging or whatever, um, and it puts me in mind too of a time when uh, uh, I encountered uh, this is over in Indiana it was state next over for me and. Uh, we, I was with a couple other guys and we encountered a big racer, which, you know, is a non-venomous colubrid over here. Yeah. 
And we were encountered the racer. And so we're like a pyramid, the three of us, you know, and the racer is sort of in the middle and it, it had an, like an open escape route to one side, but instead it, it kind of went between two of us and it, it, they go, they're pretty fast. So it went right to a tree yeah, around the side of the tree and it, ju- it was just gone. And so we went over and looked behind the tree and there's a little hole, you know, in the ground at the base <laughs> of the tree. And so, you know, that, that, you know, that was probably, I don't know, maybe 10, 10, 12, you know, feet away. But that snake knew where that hole was. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so where he wanted to go. And, and I suppose it, you know, it's, it's exactly what I was saying before about the taipans where they, they do actually have sort of some spatial memory. Um, and I, I suppose that, that leads back to one of the reasons why I'm so against trying to sort of translocate animals out of places because they they do have a memory of where things are. And there's, there is papers in regards to hibernacular uh, for, for various rattlesnakes and stuff like that that haven't done well when they've been translocated because they can't find the place to overwinter. Yeah, um, when you when you do get to the United States and you go to Arizona, I I, I hope you get to hook up with uh, my my buddy Brian Hughes, who does the rattlesnake yep. relocation. Uh, I think you guys could have a pretty good conversation about relocation because he has to work he has to work extra hard and, and go the extra mile to to make sure that uh, the animals get relocated in appropriate habitat. Um, and uh, the the whole concept of these little these little baby neonate rattlesnakes that uh, really haven't established uh, any territory and and they they end up in all kinds of goofy places because they're they're just tiny they don't know anything yet they haven't established themselves and so they end up in all kinds of interesting places and uh, you know they have to find good places for them to live outside of people's houses and stuff and of course yeah, yeah they're they're big on keeping the, the snakes out of the property and you know they do a lot of mitigation work yeah, they, they I've certainly, you know, I listened to to the podcast that you did with Brian sort of in the at the start of your uh the start of the podcast that you were doing and it was very, very interesting. Um I really like the idea of, of preventing the snakes from coming into the property in the first place and, and providing that barrier because it you're preventing the animal from coming in and so that the animal then doesn't become a, a threat and doesn't become doesn't have that negative impact with the animal. With the with the owner, and the snake chooses to go where it wants to go, as opposed to us trying to make a decision based on the ecology of that species for it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a, a complicated issue to be sure. Yeah, I, I don't think it's quite as simple as what some people think. Some people think that you can capture a snake and and basically just move it and and it'll be okay. Um, if you take such a bare bones approach to it, for a lot of cases, you might as well uh, put the animal out of its misery now because it's going to have a slow and painful death. So, yeah, you, you, you certainly can't put it in, in a place where it won't, where you know it can't get water or can't you know get out of the out of the elements, things like yeah. that. Yeah. So you know, from our point of view, we we try to make sure that when we were doing the translocations, that we would translocate as close as possible and i spent a lot of time explaining to people that hey this common tree snake is not going to do any harm to you it 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 cannot hurt you uh and the best thing to do if you see a common tree snake in your yard 
is to close the blinds if you don't like common tree snakes because chances are <laughs> that common tree snake is going to be out of there in the in the next few minutes. With regards to carpet pythons, while carpet pythons don't prevent elapids from coming into people's properties, carpet pythons do eat rats and mice. Rats and mice leave scent trails. The elapids that are hunting those uh, are hunting those rats and mice pick up on those scent trails. And so by having something removing those scent trails from the from the property that's harmless, it might lessen the chance of having uh, dangerously venomous species in their in their yard. And so by using a couple of strategies like that, you can generally get people to to leave animals where they are as opposed to um, moving them on. Much harder sell when somebody's got an eastern brown snake at their back door. I guess so. That makes that makes sense. Um, uh, it's kind of hard to. We can't expect everybody to think we, the way we do about it. So uh, you have to have a strategy for trying to explain that your technique, or yeah, your, your your reason for um, leaving the animal there. I mean, <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. And you know, explain to people that look that you know you have a brown snake. The brown snake that's in your yard is isn't interested in biting you. It's not interested in biting your kids. It's not interested in biting your pets as long as they stay away from that brown snake. If you stay away from yep. it, it is not going to, to pick a fight with you. You know, Brown nope. snakes don't, don't start fights, but they do finish them. <laughs> wow. Oh, man. I'd love to see one of those someday. Well, you know, you got me all excited about coming to Australia at some point. So uh, I'm not sure when, but I know I'm going to get there, as I said earlier. So. Uh, so I'm kind of looking forward to it, and I'll have to pick your brain sometime in the future about it. Yeah, well, 100%, mate. You know, you you, you come over here and let me know, and I'll, you know, if you're not coming to southeast Queensland, I'll be able to hook you up with any herpers that uh, wherever you choose to choose to go, that's for sure. Well, you, you have a lot of interesting uh, things in your region, so it's, it's pretty high on my list. So, Well, we, we have Strophurus not too far away from here, so, you know. Yeah. I'm, uh, with with some confidence, I reckon I can put you on to uh, uh, Strophurus Williams Eye, the the Eastern Spiny Tail Gecko, and the Golden Tail Gecko Strophurus Tanacorda. Ooh, yeah, that's that's good stuff right there for me, brother. <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah. they're, they're, one of the interesting things about Strophurus is they've actually got um, uh, fluid in their tails, and so one of the reasons they have these spines or these brightly coloured tails is so that it's a uh, it's a piece of um, a warning, I suppose, in that, you know, they they actually skirt this horrible tasting fluid. And if it gets in your eye, it will cause your eye to redden up and, and all the rest of it. It's quite an irritant. Um, oh, really? Then, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Huh. And so uh, any predator that might get a hold of the tail uh, will think twice about doing that again. Definitely. Definitely. It stinks and it's sticky. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very I, much I for really having enjoyed, me. Uh, it's great. I just enjoyed talking to you and um, and uh, getting to know you a little better. And uh, really appreciate you, you know, giving everybody a little different perspective. I, uh, you're my uh, first Australian guest, and I think it's pretty cool to to be able to sit down and talk to you through the magic of the internet. And uh, <laughs> and we only had this. Only had the session crap out once, so uh, that's not too bad. Yeah, no, that no, was pretty good. Um, yeah, look at, I, I suppose from 
from one herper to another, I'm um, I'm pretty thankful for the podcast that you've put together as well. In that being this this field based um, this herp podcast, and you get to listen to to herpers from across the globe. And you know the the one thing that um, I suppose that I've picked up from from all of your your shows, from all of your guests, is this enthusiasm to educate other people to enjoy and share their experiences but also to do it ethically and you know your your hurt mantra of of hurt better um (laughs) is is lived by all of those people over here so um you know it's 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 nice to see and and look at the end of the day if if you make one small change to something that you do in that you interact with the wildlife in a less invasive way um, or, you know, you you go to a habitat and instead of going to the habitat uh, out of season for that animal and having to, to lift up rocks and things like that, go to the, the habitat when those animals are active and go to the habitat at the right time of day when those animals are active and see what they're actually doing as opposed to rock rolling and stuff like that because, you know, you, you lift a rock off a, a uh a moisture layer you're going to change that microhabitat structure underneath that rock and it's not just herbs that live underneath that rock it's insects and and bugs and spiders and all sorts of stuff and you know as my my father used to say to me as a very small kid how would you feel if a giant ripped the roof off your house you'd like them to put it back <laughs> so um so now rather than, than rock rolling what i tend to try and do is is go to the habitat when uh, those animals are active and get to interact with them uh, at night on on a hillside. You know, there's there's really nothing better for it. Yeah, I, I you've touched on a very important aspect of this, and and not just for Australia, but uh, and not just for the desert uh, southwest over here too. It's just anywhere where where water is a commodity, a precious com- a precious thing. Uh, Lifting a, a rock or a log, uh, you you we, we call it breaking the moisture barrier or breaking the moisture seal, and then that the the space underneath there can tend to dry out, and you eliminate a small microhabitat that that animal is using. And uh, you know, somebody uh, somebody taught me that a long time ago, and uh, brought that to my attention, and uh, I tried to keep that in mind and uh, and try to remember that uh, boy, you can. You really can screw things up for an animal just by lifting that rock up. Well, there's a lot of reptiles that are, are saxicoline in their um, in their their habits. You know, they, they they spend all their time underneath rocks. And when you look at the rocks that those animals tend to use, they tend to be a very particular shape. They tend to be a particular thickness, and they're often um, got a particular angle. So you know, it might be on a in our case, a, a northwest-facing ridge, which is the in the northern hemisphere, the equivalent of a southeast-facing ridge, I suppose, um, where it's the it's the warmest and it's the, it's the nicest sort of particular ridge that those animals want to utilise, and they they get this build-up of leaves and hummus around it, and you cannot effectively put that back. You can do something to try and do it to the best of your abilities, but you're never going to get the seal exactly the way it was. And so almost all of those animals don't live their entire lives underneath those rocks. So if you go to those places at the right time, 
it's like that black snake that I was talking about before that was foraging along the stream. You get to see what that animal's actually doing on those rock faces as opposed to just sitting there that's just been found underneath its shelter site. Yes. Very good point to make. Um, and I would like to talk to you for probably a couple more hours, but I'm sure <laughs> you, have, you have your day to get to. You've got taipans to feed and things like that. And uh, <laughs> But yeah. uh, again, I, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, hopefully one of these days we'll get to meet in, in person. That'll be a good time. 100%. All right, Mike. Well, thank you very much for having me on the conference. Um, on your podcast and uh yeah and i will uh i'll make sure we have links to your uh to nature for you and to the uh the books you have written and things like that and uh and you th- th- thoughtfully provided me with a picture of you with a, a nice python so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll make that was sure with that my first scrubby so i was pretty excited about that oh sure. okay good yeah. good to know okay i'll make sure those go in the show notes too and once again thanks uh, i just had a great time talking to you Thanks very much, Mike. You have a great day. All right. That's it for episode 26. I want to thank my guest, Scott Iper, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation, Scott. And hey, maybe one of these days I'm going to show up on your doorstep or, or at least appear in your general vicinity. And uh, thanks once again to all the folks who support the show via Patreon. And if you'd like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, uh, visit patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word, so much pingle. And before I go, I want to remind everyone that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group and follow the show. And along with all of that, you can email me directly at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, please take good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better.